Well, hey, welcome to The Bridge. My name is Jake Johnson. If I've not met you, I would love to meet you afterwards. And uh, you're here at The Bridge. Uh, this is our time where we open God's Word to be challenged and encouraged, to be reminded of God's goodness, and uh, to see a bunch of examples of sometimes really faithful people and then sometimes not so faithful people, but always a faithful God uh, that is true to His Word, true to His promises, true to His character. And we're going to see the same thing in Daniel chapter 3. Uh, this evening, uh, we're going to get close to the fiery furnace. I know some of you, most of you are familiar with the fiery furnace. Uh, we're not going into the fiery furnace tonight, but uh, we're going to get close and we're going to kind of spell some of those things out. But next week, uh, we're going to have a friend, Kyle Roberts, uh, one of our elders of the church. He's amazing. He's going to bring us into the fiery furnace next week. But tonight, uh, we want to talk about uh, Daniel's three friends. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and the experience they have as, as the cultural pressure surrounds them, and they live in a world that is uh, much different than what, uh, what Jerusalem was, and, and how they navigate it. Just as a, a recap, I'm not really going to recap a ton of the, the vision that we had, but remember Nebuchadnezzar had his vision, and uh, Daniel was able to interpret the dream for him and tell him that what the dream was, and, and it's a pre pretty amazing thing. If you want, you can go to our Spotify, listen to that, or YouTube, listen to that as well, and kind of get caught up on that. But what I want to remind you of as we jump into Daniel chapter 3 is that this vision— just revealed uh, that Gentiles were going to be basically running the world. They're, they're going to be in charge. They're going to be the powerful nations of the world for a really long time. And so if you're a Jew that has been exiled, you've been conquered by the Babylonians, and you have been taken captive to their land, and now you're kind of being forced to live under their parameters, under their rules, and now you're told by a, a, a vision that it's going to last even longer than you thought. If you're a Jew, if you're a believer in God and you're hearing this, you're going to get discouraged. You're going to be pretty uh, bummed at the fact that you're not in control anymore. And you're going to be living in a world where you're constantly in exile. You're not the home team. You know what that feels like sometimes when you, you are the home team where the majority of the people are around you think the same way, talk the same way, view things the same way, and then all of a sudden you get thrown into a different setting and all of a sudden you feel like you're the away team? You're like, man, I am in a hostile environment. And it starts to weigh on you and it starts to pressure you to do things and think things and act differently than maybe you're used to. And so what we need to look at, the, the context for tonight is how are God's people supposed to live in a land not their own. For the Jews, it was, how do I live in Babylon? For us, as believers, how are we supposed to live in a culture that, that is anti-faith? Maybe some of you have heard this terminology before, but uh, statistically, in almost every category, we live in a post-Christian culture. We live in a post-Christian culture, meaning there was a time in America's history where Christianity was really the dominant uh, worldview, a Judeo-Christian worldview. That was dominant in America for a time. 
It may not have been a dominant amount of genuine uh, saved people, but everybody had somewhat of a Judeo-Christian worldview in a majority sense, but that's not the case anymore. It is post that reality. And so people are over or uh, exhausted or altogether hostile to the things of Christianity, to the views of it, to the beliefs of it. And, uh, and we need to know, how do we live when the world is going in an opposite direction and isn't thrilled about our devotion to God? I think this is a good question for our day. And I don't know about you, I wrestle with this all the time. But man, how, where, what's going to happen in the next 10, 20, 30, 50, 60 years um, in our world? In, in not just Ditton, Texas, and North Texas, but everywhere at Broad. What's going to happen? And I'm not one of those fear-mongering types, you know, where I start to freak out and say, ah, oh, you know, this is all about to explode and go to crap. That's not really my reality. I, it doesn't freak me out. I don't get anxious about these things. Um, and I'm not really worried about what that's going to happen in my life because I just trust the Lord. However... I've got two little kiddos. One of them is running around everywhere. You can just hear the pitter-patter of his little feet all around this building. Uh, thank you for keeping him alive sometimes, by the way. And then I have Miles, who's even younger than that. He's seven months old. I think about it for them. I say, man, how, how is it going to be? How is it going to be for them as they live, as they grow up? And the school systems, with their friends, with their teachers, with their coaches— you know, how are they going to be influenced and, and are they going to be strong enough, smart enough, wise enough to make decisions and not be influenced by the world that is anti-faith? And so I think about it for them and I think about it for all of you as you've been tossed into North Texas and UNT at Texas Women's University, NCTC, Colin, whatever it may be. And how do you, how do you stand for God even when everyone else bends the knee to cultural pressure. So that's where we're going. To set the scene for you in chapter 3, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he takes this vision uh, that has the head of gold, right, of, of Babylon. It's him. He is the head of gold. And then after him will come other nations like um, the Medo-Persians in Greece and then Rome. But in the end, God is going to come in his kingdom and he is going to collapse this statue. And ultimately, it is God who will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. And so you ought to get right with him because one day he's going to come and you have to stand before him. And it actually makes an impact on Nebuchadnezzar if you look at verse 46 of chapter 2. It says, The king Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and fragrant incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to, able to reveal this mystery. And so then the king promotes Daniel and Daniel says, hey, also my friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, and so they get put over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. And so that's the last moment that we have. And then in chapter three, we have a new setting. We have a new timeline. We don't know how far this was from his vision to this fiery furnace moment, uh, but it's likely multiple years. Uh, it is likely multiple years, and, and so the last time we saw Nebuchadnezzar, he is bowing down before Daniel. He is giving homage to Daniel and the God of gods, a revealer of mysteries. But unfortunately, 
it's a pretty short-lived emotional experience for Nebuchadnezzar because he is going to run with this vision of a statue um, and he is going to build a statue himself and he is going to get all people to worship it. So follow along with me in verse one of chapter three. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judge, the magistrates, and the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So he takes this, this idea of this vision, right, of the statue that he sees, and he says, I'm going to make a statue myself. And he makes it of gold. I wonder where he got that idea. Probably because it was a head of gold that he represented. He says, oh, I'm going to make an entire statue of gold. Now, it was probably overlaid because that's a whole lot of gold to make a statue. And this is not, this isn't a small thing, okay? Uh, it's 90 feet tall, and it is nine feet wide. That's, that's big. I mean, this is a big statue that he builds. And this, this was likely a tribute to the pagan god Nabu, or Nebo, uh, who was the god of wisdom. He's the god of wisdom and uh, literature and writing. Uh, they claimed that he invented writing and all kinds of literature for humans. And uh, even think about Nebuchadnezzar's name. Uh, Nebu is, is this god, the god of wisdom. Uh, and his name, Nebuchadnezzar, likely means viceroy or viceroy of Nebo. Meaning Nebuchadnezzar was acting on the authority of Nebo, the god of wisdom. And so he is creating this statue, gathering everyone in his kingdom, everyone that's anybody, into his kingdom and saying, we're going to worship this statue. We're going to worship the god of Nebo, and ultimately, that everybody would worship Nebuchadnezzar himself. So a very short-lived emotional experience uh, that Nebuchadnezzar is amused or amazed by the God of heavens, the God of Daniel, uh, but also the reality for them in Babylon is that they're polytheistic. Poly meaning multiple, theistic meaning God, essentially. They would believe in multiple gods. And so they take Daniel and say, wow, your God reveals mysteries. That's a cool little thing. I'm going to put that in my pocket. And now I have the God of wisdom over here, Nebo. I'm going to worship him. Their whole, their whole philosophy on this was let's gather as many gods and try and appease them in as many ways as we can so that we'll be blessed. This is idolatry. It is serving and worshiping all of these gods that they have created in their minds and physically with statues, but it was all self-serving. Now, ultimately, idolatry puts mankind, self, on the throne. We're ultimately worshiping ourselves, that we want to be like God or be over him. And that's sin. It's idolatry. Interestingly enough, Daniel is not mentioned anywhere in this story. It's not there. We don't know if he's here. Maybe he's on some, a business trip or something like that for, for Nebuchadnezzar, or he may be just high enough up that he can just stand there and not bow, and no one's going to say anything to him because he's Daniel. Uh, but unfortunately, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, uh, they're going to be put under the microscope in this scenario. 
So he gathers everybody there uh, for worship, and he is going to force them to worship this statue. And he has two strategies. Number one, he's going to impress everybody so they'll worship. Verse 3, then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the herald loudly proclaimed to you... The command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigen, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Very wordy, but the, uh, the reality here is that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to create a spectacle. He is trying to impress everyone there so that they will bow the knee and worship and the point one of cultural pressure that we experience today as believers is that oftentimes we are tempted away from walking with God and obeying him because we're impressed by the things of this world we feel like we're missing out on something that's really cool everybody here we have fear of missing out so man am I going to miss out on a good time if I don't go if I don't step in and do these things, if I don't partake in the things that they're partaking in, if I don't go to the bars, if I don't smoke with them, am I missing out? So there's, there's this part of our, of our heart, this sinful nature that we have that is, if we're just being honest, it's a little bit impressed, it's a little bit enticed and allured by the things this world has to offer. And this is, this is the tactic of the enemy. That Satan is going to make things really shiny and look really good on the front and, and, and blind us with that, that we're only focusing on how good it's going to feel for that momentary, uh, just moment of satisfaction. And then we have to live with all of the consequences on the back end. But he's not going to get us to see that. He just wants you to see all of the bells and whistles. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He says, see how amazing this is. There's all of this music. It's emotional. It's cool. Everybody's doing it. Just join in. Bow the knee and worship this statue. So that's number one. Number two, it's intimidation. He's going to intimidate you to worship. It says in verse six, but whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of of a furnace of blazing fire. It's going to intimidate you to worship. Um, this, unfortunately, is kind of more and more where our culture is going. <laughs> that uh, I, I think in some ways America for a time was like, hey, you can do that, I can do this, and we can coexist in some way or, 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 or some form or fashion, but uh, that doesn't scare me as much. But we're moving more and more uh, where people are starting to single out and attack and belittle and pressure and threaten others if they have a contrary view, if they have a contrary belief and lifestyle in this world. And that's the scary part, is that for us as believers— if we're moving in a direction to honor God, even if it's in the opposite direction of everyone else, there's going to be problems for us. 
right, we're going to get singled out. And you say, man, that doesn't happen in our world. Uh, you guys remember that thing with Chick-fil-A a few years ago? Chick-fil-A just donated and supported financially the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And uh, I think Red Cross, uh, Salvation Army, one of those two. And uh, they, they supported these companies financially. And on their their message statements or their beliefs, you know, on the websites of FCA and uh, Salvation Army was in their um, belief statement was that they believed that marriage was to be with one man and one woman. They just believed that that's what God instituted uh, was to be one man and one woman. I mean, they're pulling from Genesis. And because of that, Chick-fil-A's world exploded because they were supporting people that were anti uh, certain uh, groups in our world today. And they got slammed constantly uh, in the news, in the public. All of the, uh, the opening of their new Chick-fil-A restaurants often has protests and riots and different stuff, especially when they went to Canada. I don't know if you guys remember this at all, but it was just insanity in the news. And right, so it's one thing for us to say, hey, you can go do this and that's fine. We're going to do this over here. But, but now Chick-fil-A for supporting uh, certain businesses and their beliefs and, and that just hold to the scriptures and see things the way God has laid it out, all of a sudden they're being attacked publicly. That's a difference. That's, that is putting pressure at a much bigger level. And so the question for us is, man, how do we navigate that, right? How do we navigate these things? We'll look at verse 8. For this reason, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. And they responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. So first of all, who are these Chaldeans? Uh, these are other people that are in Nebuchadnezzar's king's court. They're wise men. And if you remember, not too long ago, uh, guess who looked stupid in front of Nebuchadnezzar? It was the wise men, because they said, we can't do this. We can't interpret the dream. We can't tell you what your dream is. We don't know what to do. And so they were all about to die until Daniel and his friends came in and saved the day. And then all of a sudden, Daniel and his friends, they were elevated into positions of influence. And all of the other wise men, these Chaldeans, they're jealous. They're embarrassed. They're mad because they got passed up by other people. And so they get to politicking. And they're saying, oh, king, live forever. You made a decree, a great decree. You did a good job, very smart of you. And guess what? There are three people here. They didn't bow down and worship the statue. What are you gonna do, Nebuchadnezzar? What are you gonna do? See, they're, they're just setting this up for these Jews, these faithful Jews that are trying to honor God to be singled out and to be punished for their faith. 
That's tough stuff. And Nebuchadnezzar, he is not going to be happy in the slightest. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, and then these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Here's the moment. What would you do? What would you do? Uh, this is, you know, the, the classic uh, fight or flight, right? You remember this? Do you fight? Uh, do you take off? Or do you fly away? Uh, do you freeze? Or uh, what is it? Fawn? Fawn? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know what fawn was, but Jacob explained it to me. Fawn's like where you just give in to whatever they're at pressuring you to do, right? Is that a good way to say it? So if you're fawning in this moment, you're like, I guess, yeah, okay, I'm... Yeah, okay, fine, I'll bow, because I don't want to die. I don't want to get thrown into a fiery furnace. It's so, right, it's interesting. What would you do? Would you freeze? Would you fight back? Would you run away? Would you fawn? I know some of you in this audience, you think you'd sly or whatever, and when you hear the music, you're like, I'm just going to tie my shoe real quick just to not be noticed. And they're like, well, technically, I wasn't bowing down. I just had to tie my shoe, but I didn't want anybody to notice that I wasn't bowing down, and so you're just trying to play in the middle gap there, and that's not going to cut it either. Um, but all of us have this knee-jerk reaction when cultural pressure comes on us. When we feel this temptation and this pull in two different directions. Say, so, well, yeah, I want to honor God. But I also don't want it to hurt. I don't want to face any loss. I don't want to look bad. I don't want, to, I don't want people to think less of me. I don't want to miss out. Right, all of a sudden, we're in tension, we're in turmoil, and we have to figure out what will we do. And I love their response. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter, i.e., just look at what we've done. We're not bowing down. We're not bowing down. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love that response. I'll tell you why. Number one, they are respectful even when they disagree with the king. They're respectful. We as believers are called to speak the truth in love, meaning the content of our message cannot be compromised. We have to speak true or truly or truthfully to what is right and wrong, to what God has said saying, hey, this is obedience to him. This is something that God has said, and so we're going to walk in it. We, we have to be true to the content of the message. That's the area that we can't compromise. We can't say, well, I don't know. Maybe God doesn't really care. I don't know. This book was written a long time ago. Maybe it's outdated. Maybe it's old. Maybe times have changed. And so we can just kind of update it, or we can just ignore some parts. 
No, 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 no. We can't compromise in areas of truth. What God has said, we abide by it. We align our lives with it. And so there we can't compromise. And that's exactly what these guys do. And the scriptures were clear. We have up here Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments you may be familiar with. It's the first commandment. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. It's idolatry. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them nor serve them. Saying, hey, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, it's real clear. God's made it really clear that we can't bend the knee here. We can't compromise. We can't meet you in the middle on this. God has said this is sin for us. And so we're going to obey him, even if that means we're disobeying you as our governing authority. Obedience to God is going to trump any of our allegiance on earth. Obedience to God is going to supersede any allegiance that we have on earth. In government, your mom or your dad. Now make sure, make sure God has said it, okay? I've, sometimes I've had some people come up to you and it's like, hey, I, I'm having to disobey my parents because, you know, they're just doing this, that, or the other. And I'm like, oh, can really give me the situation or whatever. And they're, I'm like, hey, you're in the wrong. <laughs> like, go listen to your mom. And so I'll, I'll be honest with you in that sometimes. So you need to make sure that you're aligning to God's word and what it says, and that's the accurate application of what he said there. Uh, but our allegiance to him is over anything else. So we have to be true to what God has said is right and wrong, regardless of how people may receive it. However, we ought to be kind and respectful in our delivery of the truth. We don't want to be dismissive, disrespectful. We don't want to provoke others to anger, get a rise out of them. We don't want to be demeaning and belittling to other people just because we have a contrary opinion to them. And so we're going to be firm in our content, but we also need to be true in our delivery and our tone. We want to speak the truth in love, meaning we do it lovingly and from a place of love, not from a place of anger, not from a place of uh, pride, or a a sense of superiority over other people because they see something this way and we see it a different way. And this is exactly what these three do. They speak the truth in love. They kindly deliver the truth. And they draw the line in the sand where God draws a line in the sand. That's number one. Number two, they have a healthy view of God's power to work miracles. They have a healthy view of God's power to work miracles. This is exactly what, I mean, I just love it. Verse 17, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Hey, King, I just want you to know, God is powerful enough to deliver us from the situation. God can miraculously work and intervene in human history in supernatural ways that he can, he can supersede the natural circumstances that we're living in. God is able. That's something that all of us need to know is that God is able to intervene in any time and place in human history because he's God. He is able. But 
verse 18, even if he does not. God is able, but God will do what he sees fit in my circumstances. They're saying, hey, we believe God can save us from this scenario. He's powerful enough. But he may not. He may be calling us home through the form of a very hot furnace. He may. And when you have sicknesses in your life, in your family, when they hit close to home, when you have seemingly insurmountable circumstances in your life and you say, God, I need a miracle because this isn't going well. Here's what you need to know. God is capable, but he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. And so the beauty of their faith is that they submit to God's plan. They say, God, whatever you choose to do is best. We trust you. We're not going to lean on our own understanding, but we're gonna lean on your character and your goodness and your power in this circumstance. That's a healthy faith. A healthy faith is not twisting God's arm and saying, you've promised health and wealth and prosperity in my life and I'm going to demand it of you. That's not it. That's not it for us. He might, he can, he certainly can and he might. But if he doesn't, God's still good. And he is still worthy of worship. That's the last point. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We will worship God regardless of what he does in this scenario. So wherever God takes you in your life, whatever happens here, trust him and obey knowing that he is capable, and we can pray that. Man, I pray for healing in people's lives all the time. But I pray with my hands open, and, and metaphorically, my heart open as well. And I trust God's good. I trust his sovereignty in these scenarios. And he will do what he will. And I'll trust him on the other side of this. Man, that is healthy faith. And that's an amazing response that these three give to the king in an intensely pressure-packed scenario. They say God might choose to bring us home rather than save us from this fire. And we will submit to him in that rather than submit to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, do not judge the situation by the king's threat and by the heat of the burning fiery furnace, but by the everlasting God and the eternal life which awaits you. Let not flute, harp, and bagpipe fascinate you, but hearken to the music of the glorified. Men frown at you, but you can see God smiling on you, and so you are not moved. That's good. What kind of faith is able to stand up against cultural pressure? It's a faith that is happy to lose this world if it means gaining Christ. How can I not give in to cultural pressure even if I might lose my life? It's to say with Paul, to live is Christ 
To die is gain. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And that's better. So while I'm on this earth and I'm living this life, I'm going to do it in service to God. As long as he has me here, I'm going to live for him. But man, when he takes me home, that's better. And I can't wait. You see, when you have that faith, when you have that perspective in life, we can't lose. You see that? We can't lose. No one should stop us from being bold with our faith. Because what are they going to do? The worst they can do is take our life, but even that's better than this. We get to go home. So we can entrust our lives to a sovereign creator and sustainer and provider that's good, and we can be bold as lions. We can be lights in the world no, how, no matter how surrounded by darkness we are because God is in charge. And we can entrust with him whatever we see fit. Martin Luther says, faith is a living and unshakable confidence, a belief in the grace of God so assured that a man would die a thousand deaths for its sake. So that's faith. I have an unshakable confidence in the grace of God that I'll die a thousand deaths for its sake. And so I'll be bold. And I'll love people kindly, sharing with them the truth of who God is and what is right and wrong, of how he has created us to live and for us to abide and obey in him. And that we'll tell the whole world of his goodness. But also that everyone's going to stand before him one day and they need to know where they stand. They need to know what is true. They need to know what he has laid out for us in his word. And how will they hear if no one tells them? So for us, as a ministry, I hope we can step into this reality knowing that, yeah, we're surrounded by people that might not be the most thrilled that we're Christians. I don't know if I've shared the story, but uh, one of the first times that I was on campus at UNT, shout out UNT, uh, some girl, we were like manning some table or whatever, and we were giving out some stuff, and uh, she like comes up to, I was behind the table, but she found a way to get to me, I don't know, uh, and she just kind of came up to me and like got close and all like, whoa, uh, and she goes, so you're religious? <laughs> And I was like, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's more relationship, you know, that whole thing. We've all seen Bethke. But, uh, and, and I was kind of talking, and she was like, so you're like a church. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we're right over here down the road. And like, right as I'm kind of talking about it, she just goes, <laughs> literally hisses at me. And then just walks away. I mean, this girl couldn't be more than like five foot five, but it did not matter. She hissed at me. And this was like probably, sorry, like 15 minutes into this. It's like, what did I just get myself into? All right, this is my madhouse. Um, but you know what? We can't let hissing stop us from obedience to God, right? Uh, just to be faithful. And so I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what those fears are. Uh, I don't know the pressures that are on your way. But here's what I'll tell you, man. Draw the line where God draws the line. You be obedient to him, even if that means you take a hit. Even if it means you take a hit, because it's worth it. He's worth it. And be bold with your faith. Be bold. 
You say, man, I don't, I'm, I'm a little shaky on the gospel. I don't know if I can have a full gospel conversation. Hey, maybe the start is, what are you doing on Tuesday nights? Want to come with me? Who knows? They may say yes. I bet half of this room is here because somebody was just like, you guys want to come with me to Tuesday night to this thing? And like, what do we do? Uh, there's snacks, coffee. They sing a little bit. There's some talk. You know, whatever it is, get them in the door. Hey, just be bold with your faith. It's okay that they know you're a Christian. It's okay to take a hit because God is worth it. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would increase our faith because we need it. And as Luther said, would you give us a, a living and unshakable confidence in your grace, in your goodness, in your power um, that is so assured that we are willing to die a thousand deaths for your sake. I pray for my friends here. I pray for them as they navigate their daily lives in a post-Christian culture. That we're not the home team anymore. We're exiles in a foreign land. We're just passing through. This is not our ultimate home. So God, I pray that we wouldn't hide away, but we would be the light of the world. That we wouldn't hide our light under a, a bushel, but we'd be bold with our faith, bold as lions. And God, I pray that this world would, they would hear us sing. That we wouldn't be afraid to sing out. We wouldn't be afraid to share of your goodness, to invite people to come and see what you are all about and what God's people are all about. That this is not a room of a bunch of people that have it together, that are really good at performing and putting on a good face. We're broken people that are in need of saving and that you are our savior. And that's why we sing, that's why we smile, that's why we do what we do and live the way that we live. So God, solidify our faith and make us bold as lions. As men and women of the past have done, Lord, we just carry on in the witness of your power, in your glory, and you are worthy of worship. And so we worship you now. Amen. Go stand. You have been our dwelling place forever.